Hello, everyone. Welcome to Everyman BJJ, a weekly show covering MMA and BJJ news and training tips. Good afternoon, Frank. Hey, good afternoon, Noah. Hi, everyone. Uh, Frank Forza here with my good friend, Noah Green, perhaps our other commentator, uh, Jordan Worth, our friend, will be joining us in a little bit. Um, this is episode 32, Noah. So amazing. I think you told me off air that this is actually week 32 of the calendar year. So we've been able, life has happened. A lot of things have been thrown at us. We have had to reschedule some episodes, but as it stands now, we're on track for the calendar year. We got 32 episodes, so we're, we're still going. We're, we, we, we didn't quit. We're showing up. We don't have many subscribers. We don't have many viewers, but that's the story of a lot of successful enterprises where you're just building the foundation uh, brick by brick. And here we are, episode 32. So, you know, you were asking me what, what you know, we didn't, we don't always, by the way, out there, Noah and I, Noah has been very successful, uh, you know, in, in with the financial sector and he's now pivoting. I've been successful at a few things. Um, I think we both plan quite a bit in certain areas of our life and not always others. And I actually love that we do this podcast sometimes improvisationally. Sometimes we go through things and we'll text each other back and forth during the week, Noah, mm-hmm. and we'll say, hey, let's talk about this. Or sometimes during an episode, we'll say, oh, man, there's not enough time today, but next week or in a future episode, we'll tackle that. Um, but I actually like the fact that there's like sort of the, 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 the listeners out there that there's a lot of discovery and we do things improvisationally. The thing I was thinking about while I was making, preparing breakfast here today um and i fasted for probably like i think 12 13 hours and then went with like some green tea and even some celery then i had a um i had some grapefruit and then about hour and a half two hours later had a little bit of sweet potato and i had some uh, muesli which is like organic oats and raisins and almonds and uh some strawberries and some some blueberries and i actually started doing this baking soda like a half teaspoon noah of baking soda and water which is supposed to help with your ph balance because a lot of people are very you know your body has an ideal ph balance of acidity to alkalinity and so i've started to put a little more attention to that apple cider vinegar can help with that sort of stuff too a lot of people we get really uh strong on the fruit side right on the sweet fruit side and then we're weak on, you know, the bitter berry side or lemons and things like that. Grapefruits that tend to have a little bit more of that, give you a little more of that acidity, that balance. But but anyway, while I was doing this, I thought about my buddy Benson Henderson. I don't know if you know Ben Henderson, the former UFC champion. He's now with Bellator. And he fought Michael Chandler on Friday. And they had a really great fight, their first fight um, a few years ago. And they fought again. And my boy Ben Henderson uh, came up short. I guess Chandler, man, threw a nice for those of you out there watching, it's a beautiful combination, the combination that he throws. So um, I didn't know that Chandler now trains with like Gilbert Burns and, and Usman down, uh, down in Florida. I know Chandler lives in Nashville, I believe. He relocated to Nashville. He used to be, I believe, in San Diego with, um, you know, uh, uh, training, I think, with Dom Cruz and those guys, I think, and Eric Del Fiero, who's a great guy. And then he moved, I guess, to Nashville. Now, this is the interesting thing, Noah, about Michael Chandler. I want to talk about Ben Henderson a little bit, and then I want to talk about Michael Chandler. I I did a story. I've done a couple of stories on Dominic Cruz's mindset, his psyche. I thought I think when it comes to mentally tough fighters, right? You're talking about 
these fighter athletes, these elite uh, UFC fighters and Bellator and one FC, these are some of the strongest, mentally strongest athletes in the world and in participating in what is probably one of the top five hardest sports in the world. We could debate that, but we could say definitively that if you're going to rank sports in terms of rigor and, uh, you know, gruelingness and risk of injury, even, even the risk of death, we've seen that more through the weight cuts, but um, you know, you're talking about top five mentally toughest. And when I did a story, my second story, I did one story about Dom Cruz for UFC magazine years back. This next one I did was for Bleacher Report. Bleacher Report's one of the top 10 most popular sports websites in the world. So I did this story about Dom Cruz coming back from three completely torn ACL injuries. All right. That's like almost unheard of in professional sports. There's like one or there's a couple other athletes that have had the three torn ACLs and come back. There was an NFL player playing for North Carolina, <laughs> linebacker. He came back, performed really well. There's been like on my, I believe on my two hands, probably on my one hand, athletes that have come back from three completely torn ACLs and been like, man, they're, they're as good or better as they were. And Dom Cruz is on that Mount Rushmore of three completely torn ACLs, missed, I think he had one fight in five years, okay? Oh. One fight in five years, then he tears it again. And, and you know, and, and if you ever go watch online, um, Noah, he's, when he tears the third ACL, and Dom Cruz is a pretty stoical, like, you know, he's a men he's not a guy that's going to cry. He's in the video addressing the fans and telling them, I have to drop out of the fight. I tore my ACL again, and he starts crying. It's a very emotional video. Like you just see that how much this means, this guy, this UFC champion. And of course, eventually he gets stripped of the belt because he's the champion, but he gets stripped of the belt. Nobody beats him, but he gets stripped. And so Dom Cruz is a really, if you want to study mindset, I mean, you got guys like Randy Couture, you got guys like Dom Cruz. I mean, they're in a league of their own and there's probably a few others that I'm just not thinking of now. They're in a league of their own mentally, right? And a lot of what Dom Cruz did, because his body didn't work, he had to go to a place where, like, you know, monk mode, where his mind was doing the work even when his body couldn't. So there was a lot of visualization, a lot of mantras, a lot of mental training because his body wasn't able to oblige. And when I when I did the I did a big story on him on Bleach Report. It's called uh, the, the, the Bleach Report was wonderful to work with. They named it. Um, Give in to win. Give in to win mean almost like a surrender. Surrender to win. Like this path, this this monk path of Dom Cruz to regain the UFC title. And in that story, when I interviewed, I said, I was talking to guys and I said, listen, I was talking to top trainers, people that have worked with Dom Cruz. And I said, tell me who's the mentally toughest fighter or hardest worker you know of in the gym. Like you've seen a lot of fighters, right? This is a place of alphas. This is a place of a land of hard workers, a land of confident people, right? The most ultra competitive people. Tell me who stands out. And of course, Dom Cruz is right there. Everyone's like, well, Dom Cruz. Randy Couture's name comes up. A few other names come up. A name that surprised me, Noah, was Michael Chandler. Michael Chandler, because he's been in Bellator, he had three fights, and then he signed with Bellator. He was at University of Missouri. He was a very good collegiate wrestler. But people that have worked with Michael Chandler, like because, again, because Michael Chandler had probably, I'm assuming, because he hasn't been under UFC, he's done his, what, his 12, 15, however many fights he's done, 20 fights. He's done them at Bellator. 
right? He was a three-time Bellator champion. He's he's won, he's lost, so he's able to come back, which shows mental toughness too. He loses the belt, he comes back better. He loses the belt, he comes back better. He gets knocked out, he comes back. And and so he's got that. But I, I don't know Michael Chandler, right? I've had a chance to train with a lot of fighters. I've had a chance to interview a lot of them. Never had a chance to interact with him. But his name came up and said, bro, people were telling me too, Michael Chandler, Frank, is right there with Dom Cruz in terms of hard worker, mental motor, like this guy is the real deal. And so I'm mentioning that because of this most recent fight. I still have never interviewed Michael Chandler. I've never trained with him. Um, But if you have a chance, Noah, you and everybody else watching, if you want to see a beautiful combination, because Noah, you and I still appreciate stand-up fighting, right? We still appreciate, even though, you know, we're jujitsu, we're ground specialists. That's our first and foremost love. But I love the stand-up. I pay attention. And there's a combination there. So so um, Michael Chandler apparently went down. He's still at Nashville. They still run their gym there. But he went down and, 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 and subsidized his training with, you know, uh, Usman, who's a UFC Walter Ray champion, and Gilbert Burns, who's I think going to be – I think Gilbert and them are still in the same camp, I think. I know Gil, both some of those guys, Usman, have been with ATT, and I think Gilbert. But in any event, he trained with Usman and some other studs. He switched stances in this fight. So Chandler throwing a new wrinkle. He switched stances to a, to a southpaw stance, and he has a sequence where he, throw, he throws a kick from, the, from, the, from a normal stance – from a conventional stance, he throws a kick to Benson Henderson's body. Benson's really good. Benson blocks that kick, sidesteps the kick. From after Chandler throws that kick from a conventional stance, he's now in a he's in a southpaw stance, which Benson he had not fought Benson in that. From the southpaw stance, he throws a jab that makes Benson recoil. When Benson recoils, and Benson kind of throws a little punch, but nothing devastating. Benson recoils, tries to throw. And Chandler steps in from that jab, boom, throws in with it. I mean, as as elongated, kind of like Conor McGregor. When Conor McGregor punches you with the big left, he doesn't just punch you. Conor brings the kitchen sink. Conor is all, I mean, Conor's body is all forward. He gets maximum extension and follow through. Textbook, like wham. You know, he doesn't hit to you. He hits through you. So they've watched that combination that he threw, uh, Chandler threw. It was a kick. It was a, it was a side kick to the body, which Benson blocks followed by immediately by a jab from the southpaw stance, followed with a left hand from hell that just complete follow through. Benson Henderson had only been stopped once in his career. Love Benson Henderson. Got a good relationship with Lent Benson Henderson. My shorts for the IBJJF Nogi Worlds. One time he came to me, he's like, I don't like my shorts. Can you have an extra pair? I gave them to him and, and, and he went out there and he had, a, he had a good match. I don't know that he won, but he, he, he Benson Henderson is so competitive, takes on all comers. But anyway, I've hogged the mic. No, I apologize. But this is what I think of when Michael Chandler came up. It's worth watching that fight. It's worth following that guy on Instagram because that guy is the real deal in terms of work ethic and psyche and mental toughness from people I trust. Um, And then Benson Henderson, man, is anytime, anywhere, just drops into jujitsu tournaments, drops into the world championships. He's always doing like those fight to wins. He's fighting you know he's a ufc champion he's in bellator and uh you know and and but one other benson story let me tell you one other benson story and then i'm gonna you can have the mic because i know you got plenty to say but one other benson henderson story this is how competitive benson henderson is okay benson henderson um what was 
this this was back in the WEC. Remember, Benson Henderson was a WEC champion, I believe, as well, a WEC world champion, which was a world champion. I mean, those guys were world champion. They produced a lot of great fighters that went over the UFC and just crushed it, just killed it. And so one day, I believe Benson, I believe Benson was champion. I believe he was champion or he was fighting for the title. And he he's there at the weigh-ins, okay? He looked like death. I mean, he looks like death at the weigh-ins. He's one of those guys that when he cuts, sometimes you just look at him, and you're like, my God, like you can see it written all over his face. Like, bro, how does this guy make the weight? He looks like death, right? He probably walks at 182, 185, and he looks like death. He makes the weight. He's all happy. You know, he's, he's done it. And he walks by me and he knows because I interview him. And he says, uh, he knows he had found out that I was a, that I was a jujitsu black belt. I was a jujitsu black belt even back then, you know, 2010 or so, 2011. And he knew I was a jujitsu black belt. And he said, uh, he's like, like, uh, Frank, um, do you want to train? And I said, uh, you know, I got, I got things to do, whatever. And I'm like, he's like, I, I would love to train with you. I said, well, when were you looking to train? He's like, we can go train, you know, whatever, in half hour, an hour. We can go do that. He, what I interpreted this as, first of all, I thought this guy's a nut. He just looks like walking dead at the weigh-in, right? And he makes the weight. And then he, of all the things he could do, he seeks me out. And he's like, hey, man, I heard you're a jiu-jitsu black belt, you know, whatever. And he's like, do you want to train? And I said, well, yeah, I'm sure I'll train with you sometimes. When do you want to train? When are you in Vegas? I don't know. You know, we can train, you know, in a little bit, you know, I'm just, I just got to do this and this and this, and then we can train. Now, what I interpreted, knowing Benson Henderson all these years, what I took that as he had heard, Hey, Frank's a black belt and he, you know, and he's all right. He's he's legit. And I just think Benson was like the kind of guy that's like, I want to see for myself. I think, I think I can, you know, the writer guy, I, I think I can, you know, and, and he thought I'd apparently Benson, God bless him. Thought I would be it easy because before a big fight, I believe it was a title fight. He's like, "Yeah, let's train." That's, yeah. Be- that's Benson Henderson, bro. Anytime, anywhere. So anyway, Noah, what you got for us today? Well, it's keeping with um, with what you're talking about with uh, Benson Henderson and uh, Chandler um, talking about comebacks. Uh, look at uh, look at Chris Weidman. You know, falling from falling from grace. Fallen from you know being a champion to having to work his way back up. I I was watching that fight last night um, and uh, was just thinking of the pressure he is under to perform and to actually excel. And the fight itself, I don't know. Did you watch any of the UFC fights last night? I didn't. I do watch the highlights. I don't always watch the fights, but I do. I know that. You know, the interesting thing is when I was surveying, well, you go ahead, you fit out. I'll, I'll tell you later. No, I, I, I did not, but I did see the highlights, Noah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, Chris won his fight, and um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, 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 a dominant performance, but he did win the decision. And, um, you know, I, I was just thinking about, you know, as he's coming back from, um, you know, from his losses, you know, he had two losses in a row, and where do you go if you lose this third one? Um, you know, it's that's a that's a bit of limbo. But he he managed to pull out a W, and so it wasn't it wasn't a um, yeah it, it just it wasn't like a you know knockout in the first round kind of fight. Uh, but he did win that decision, 
anyways, um, you know, as far as coming back, uh, I wanted to step a little further, you know, going on with this coming back. Earlier I was driving, I was taking my uh, puppy that I have over to the dog park a little bit, and the thought occurred to me about, although there are a lot of people already training regularly and a lot of academies are opened up, um, you know, like in New York, Henzo's, is, they're not open yet. You know, they're, you know, Marcel, they're not open yet. Uh, I started, uh, I started watching some online courses through uh, Hoyler Gracie. Um, and uh, this past week, you know, through uh, the galler.com, uh, I let Luca uh, manages. Yep. And, um, and good last guy. week. Good guy. Yeah, but his warm-ups are a beast. <laughs> he, he runs the Upper West Side uh, Henzo Gracie uh, Academy, and that's a very nice space. It's very nice. Um, and, uh, yeah, any time we had his class uh, down at in Blue Basement, the, the warm-ups, it's just – they're a grind. It's just long because, you know, we do th- a lot of repetition – uh, you know, do double sets of everything. So, uh, but anyways, um, and I was thinking about how, um, you know, people's relationship with the, uh, with the sport and with what they're doing as far as comebacks go there, you know, we've had this mass um, period of time where we've all had to step away from our step away from it. And not everyone's going to be coming back. Not everyone makes that comeback. Um, you know, uh, like right now, I, you know, there's a lot of people unemployed. And, you know, training jiu-jitsu is not a priority for everyone in those monthly gym fees. And it might we it might take well, didn't, a, didn't Gary Tonin I'm sorry to interrupt, didn't Gary Gary Tonin, I believe, closed his gym, right? I mean, that was I saw that on social media. That's pretty astonishing. Well, he had and just moved uh, gyms, and he had a dispute with the landlord, okay. and so you know they weren't. I don't. Yeah, I don't think they were that flexible with him, and rightly so. I, you know, I, I totally agree that he, you know, if that if that new landlord wasn't that flexible, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't. I definitely think that was the right move for him just to walk away from it for now. Um, did you did you see that he had? I, I know that you're since you're up there at Henzo's in Manhattan. Did you see that Tonin um, was was? I mean, and he was saying this in jest. He was saying this jokingly, but I believe that it was that he was actually being serious. He's been kind of lobbying Donna Hare, saying, "Hey, let's get up, you, me, Gordon Ryan, uh, Nikki Ryan. Let's go to Texas. Let's just let's start a new in Texas. It's different down there. We're more free. We can train." Did you see that he he's been lobbying for that on his social media channels, which I which I get, I totally get. I did Rogan, not. You've got Rogan. You've got Rogan. You've got Rogan. Uh, to my to the best of my knowledge, Rogan's saying Texas too. So, um, Tonin's been been pounding that drum a little bit, and I think, look, I don't think Donna Hare is going to get up and go to Texas, but, um, but I think that Gary Tonin's serious about that. I wouldn't see, I, you know that that wouldn't surprise me whatsoever um, that uh, Tony and, and Gordon would go, but I, yeah, that would be a shocker if Dan and her were to walk away from Henzo's. Um, 
that um, yeah, everyone's moving down to Texas. You know, we got Elon Musk opening up uh, opening up that huge factory uh, for Tesla in, outside of Austin. Um, I've been watching the uh, a drone. There's a drone bit uh, someone's put up, and they've been going over it. Um, Texas makes a lot of sense. Texas makes a lot of sense. And we're, for, and we're talking to a, we're talking to a native Texan too. So absolutely, yeah. I I don't have enough space behind me to put put a Texas flag, but it definitely belongs behind me somewhere over there because I'm Texan first. Um, yeah, I would love to go back to Texas myself, uh, except mosquitoes, the bugs, the humidity, the storms. <laughs> There's a few drawbacks there. Well, you know. there's a lot of Texas is pretty dang big too, right? I mean, I, I oh, it's huge. Yeah, when I when I worked for UFC, I was very fortunate. We pretty much canvassed Texas, so I was in Texas a lot. You um, have, uh, yeah, you have a lot of jujitsu in Austin, a lot of jujitsu, yeah. and the Onan Academy's there, and um, you know, Gary Tone and and uh, uh, Gordon, they've been going down with along bringing Danaher. They've been going down and competing at, uh, I think it's like a submission underground or some kind of, of you know, uh, fight, uh, fight promotion. Yeah, pro- fight to win. Fight yeah, to win. they've been doing a lot of that. Um, yeah, he just uh, had a match against that kid, Dante, uh, Dante um, De Leon or whatever his name is, the Canadian kid who's really good. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess Tonin, Tonin won that one, but that was uh, – yeah, he just—he's another one. He's just like Benson Henderson. He doesn't carry fights MMA. He's tell you, Gary Tony. You know, he's, he's in one. He's in uh, one championship, and he is—he's one of those guys that he's one of those jujitsu guys like a Damian Maya that converts, man, or Gilbert Burns, right? Some of these jujitsu first people that can that actually convert because we always heard the stereotype of, well, you punch a jujitsu black belt once, they become a brown belt. You punch them twice, they become a purple belt, and punch them three times, they become a blue belt. Yada yada. And there's certainly some truth to that. There are some jujitsu people, but you got guys like Gary Tone, and he's just got the right, the right psyche, the right athleticism, the right everything. Where he's someone, I mean, he's still young in his MMA career, but if he keeps going, even a guy like Hafi Olivado, who retired because he had whatever the aneurysm or the, the problem with his brain, um, you know, there are some like that that convert very well. And people, people need a lot of people forget that they just see these jujitsu guys. Oh, you're a jujitsu guy, and they forget how well some of them, the well-rounded ones, convert. And Gary Tonin, Gary Tonin is one of those two. It reminds me of Damian Maya in the sense that Damian never really had crisp stand-up. His stand-up got better, but because of the threat, because Damian Maya did have a number of takedowns in his arsenal. He was remarkable. Damian Maya was remarkable, not just for his jiu-jitsu, but for his diversity of takedowns. He he would just w- study tape of you and find out this is the takedown you're vulnerable to based on how you distribute your weight, based on your stance. And he would he would just take you down with a body lock, with a snatch single. He would pull guard. I mean, he would he you know he he would he would judo throw you whatever it took. Right, a guy who wasn't a wrestler. So what I'm saying is, because Damian Maya had that those takedowns, and he had the world class smothering smash jujitsu, even though he's you know a little above average at striking, he's not a really good striker. But the threat, the constant threat in the other person's mind, from Anderson Silva to anybody, the constant threat of 
if Damien gets me on the ground, right? If I tee off and let my hands go with Damien, right? If I try to be too aggressive, this dude will take me down and hold me down or submit me. And that and Jake Shields had the same thing. Jake Shields, love Jake Shields. Okay, I've met Jake Shields. He is a sweetheart of a guy. Jake Shields is a good guy. I rolled like with Jake. him in New York. I like Jake a lot. Yeah. He's a beast. And I've trained on the same mats. I didn't train with Jake, but we've been on the same, we've shared the same mats together when he came out to Drysdale's. And he is the real deal. And he Jake was the same way though. Jake, you know, you know, I'm about to say something like Jake's stand-up is not very good. I mean, it's not very, you know, it's not, it's not something you would teach. But because of the Jake Shields was such a good MMA fighter, because of the constant threat of if Jake Shields takes me down. And, and it kept go watch the GSP fight. Go watch when when he fought GSP. The great GSP, one of the greatest in history, did not want to seriously throw hands. He dared not throw hands very much with Jake Shields. He was content to win a boring decision. Like, I'm not gonna sit here and throw a lot of punches and step the wrong way and get taken down by this dude, no way. And, you know, Gary Tonin is one of those guys that I'm really curious to see if he sticks. It looks like he's going to stick with MMA, but, man, I'm really curious to see how good he can be. I think he'll have better hands than Damian Maya, and, and he's one of those guys, too, that because he's so dangerous on the ground, he's got wrestling. He's tough. You know, he, he can take a licking and keep on ticking, and he's got – He's so unpredictable in the way he enters those, le- you know, any of his jujitsu, and especially his leg attacks. He's so unpredictable in it that if you're fighting him, you constantly have to be worried that at any moment he'll drop down and do, you know, do some some sort of uh, kamikaze sweep or you know roll under your leg. You just you know or take you down and jump, wind up on your back, choke you out. The constant threat of that is going to make Gary Tonin a a nightmare for anybody who fights him, I'm, even if he loses. Anybody who fights him, the week of the fight is going to be like all, all these scenarios swirling of what he could do at any moment. He's that kind of fighter. You just said something a moment ago before we, uh, that I want to go back to. Um, and I'll start by saying that um, you know, last night I yeah, I cooked, uh, cooked a big old meal. It was a big Lebanese meal. Um and uh, so it took me all afternoon to the evening. I sat down finally to uh, to watch UFC. And so, you know, I can fast forward through the uh, commercials. And I watched all the prelims and undercard. And then I realized, like, oh, wow, I still – it was 11 o'clock at night, Frank, and I still had the main card to watch. I still had four mm-hmm. fights to watch. And I watched mm-hmm. three out of four. I watched the first. I watched the first, skipped the second, and then watched the third and fourth. And I was watching them, and and I've been seeing so many fights lately, so many uh, UFC fights. Um, uh-huh. I'm starting to watch the fights in a way that um, it's like I didn't realize, but you know, after you watch so much footage. You're starting, to, you know, I'm starting to see patterns. I'm starting to match, you know, there's a, you know, our brains are masters at pattern recognition. So I'm starting to see a lot of patterns and, and things like that. And you mentioned that Damian Maya watches a lot of, a lot of footage. And he's, you said he studies uh, the 
the best way to take you down. Yeah, he doesn't you, go in and say, I want to do this. He goes in and says, you like to do this. Yeah. And there, and you're going to leave me something. And I'm going to find out what it is, drill it, and then take advantage. So I want to um, I want to go into that. I want to have a dialogue with you real quick right now. And ask for you to share a little bit of how you know right now what i'm doing is i'm watching these fights and and i I watch a lot of youtube for jujitsu competitions you know going back let me let me go back a few years ago when i was training at darren mccall's uh academy there in uh tascacita uh texas and darren was is a black belt in judo black belt in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under uh, Draculino, I believe. Mm. And what Professor Darren McCall said, and I was just talking to him one day, and he's like, yeah, I watch a lot of YouTube uh, amateur competitions. And I that struck me. I was like, wow, he's a, he's a black belt in two different martial arts. And he's still a student like that, you know. In, in the way he approaches the game, he's a heavyweight, uh, yep. not, not a heavyweight as in a solid, like solid yep. rebar, solid. There's no, you know, there's no, there's no extra there. There's no extra on Darren, and he it it impressed me, with you know just him saying that one that that five seconds, just saying, you know, I watch a lot of YouTube. Uh, matches. I watched a lot of competitions, and that, that just stuck in the back of my mind of like, well, what should I watch for? What is he looking for? And how can I use that whenever I'm meeting opponents, you know, at my level that I that they don't have anything on YouTube? Why would I waste my time? Um, so it gets it in, gets into um, Frank, the question is, how would watching YouTube, like IBJJF competitions in the gi, how would that, at my belt level, how would that help me in uh, pattern recognition whenever all I have is I go out onto the mat, bow, you know, do my bow, give respect, slap, bump, and compete? How would something, how would that help me? Do you have any insights? You know, like what you said about Damian Maya watches footage and says, this is your tendencies. How could I see, how can I develop that sense probably of how I can see this guy and immediately respond? It's almost react. I think, I think that one of the things, and I'm not speaking for everybody. I'm speaking for me. One of the things is to be patient and be willing to rewind things because a lot of things happen so fast that, Mm -hmm. you know, you can see them, but to actually see the details, the 10 or 12 or 15 things that involves, um, you know, requires somebody who's a little bit OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, which can be a good thing. And to sit there and be that person that rewinds it and rewinds it and rewinds it and takes and and looks at, well, okay, what's the stance here? What's the look that he got, right? What's the look that, what was the opponent doing? How was the opponent standing? Not just looking at what someone was doing. What were, what did the offensive athlete do against a certain look? It's just like in the NFL. It's not always 
well, we threw an 80-yard touchdown. Yeah, well, that 80-yard touchdown worked because there was a certain defense that it took advantage of, right? That 80-yard touchdown pass might not have worked if the defense had been in a different alignment, right? If the defense stacks the box and puts everybody there to stop the run, then maybe it's easier to throw over the top and get an 80-yard touchdown. But if the defense plays, you know, a, a certain cover two zone, maybe it's harder. Maybe it's better to run the ball, right? So everything, when you watch video, one of the things is to look at what both people are doing, both guys or both girls are doing. What's the look that they saw that they said, okay, I'm going to go into that. That's one thing is like, how are their bodies situated when this whole sequence started, right? How are their bodies look? The other thing I would say, um, and not, I haven't really heard many other people, I haven't heard anybody say this, but I'm saying, I always imagine when I watch a video and I like something, then mm -hmm. I'm the winning party. I imagine that it's me. So if I watch somebody do something, I, I imagine that that's me. I, I, I put, I insert myself as them. That's really cool. When I see it, I see me doing that. I don't just okay. see a third party. I don't, I don't just approach it as a third party. So part of my visualization is I see me as the executioner of that move. And hopefully on the yeah. winning end, I see me as the victor. Elvis Presley used to say this when he, I remember he got, he won a, uh, an award and he, you know, was, Elvis was very shy when he was up in public I, for someone who was such an amazing performer and showman. He, he had, he had this incredible humility, genuine and genuine shyness. So even when he would go to speak, it would be, he would speak very like very limited. But one thing he said is he said, look, I loved watching movies when I was a kid. And every time I watched the movie, I imagined myself as the hero. So I always saw myself. I was the hero. I'm the hero of that. So this very humble guy is telling you, too, though, I always wanted to play the hero. When I watched the movie, I thought Elvis is the hero. I'm the main character. I'm the hero. And and, you know, and so he so all of the success to come. Elvis Presley was like a nobody in like 1954, I think. Within 18 months, he was the biggest. He was driving like a truck. He was driving a, you know, a company truck somewhere delivering stuff. Within 18 months, he was the most famous musician in the world. And this guy, a lot of what he had done was just visualization while watching mm -hmm. movies, while watching movies. So when you're watching it, I'm not saying you do that with everything you watch. I'm saying... Do that with the videos that speak to you. You know your body type, Noah, right? You have an idea. You have an innate idea of what moves will work for you. There may be some you're not aware of now, but you have an innate idea of these are Noah greenable moves, right? Even If you're not ready today, you project one or two, three years out and say, well, this is within the rabbit hole. This is within the toolbox for Noah Green. Maybe it's a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. Maybe it's tomorrow. But this is in the rabbit hole. When you see those moves that speak to you and speak to your style and your ethos, then you say, okay, you watch it, you rewatch it, you pause it, you take a look at what was the entry, what, what was the opponent showing, and you and then you, ins you visually insert yourself. Every time you see the move, don't think of it as Gary Tonin. No, it's Noah Green. It's Noah Green. That makes a it's lot of selfish. sense. You know, we, it, we love and honor these athletes, these innovators, yeah. these in-the-moment innovators. But at the same time, for your purposes, at some point in the watching, in the visualization, you have to in, in, impose yourself in there. What would I do? How would I move? What would okay. it take for me to be faster? If you watch a move and you say, well, he was able to do this happens in striking. I was watching. I have the uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say it. You may know it, but I watch tons of street fight videos. I think it's because I'm traumatized 
by my younger days in Baltimore with the vi street violence and all the okay. you know, all the stuff that went on. And so I have this thing where I I do like watching street videos so much so that apparently YouTube or whoever does the algorithm knows and just keeps flooding my box with them, right? So I have to like I have to resist because they know me and they know what you like, right? They know whoever it is, Google, whatever knows what you like. So it sends you more of it. And at some point that becomes overkill. It becomes a distraction. And you're like, God, I got to stop. They know I like jujitsu videos. So they keep sending me good. Right. And then you have to just turn it off and be disciplined. And I had to do that with, with street fight videos. And I watch a lot of wrestling videos and I watch jujitsu videos too. And I watch UFC videos, but I do watch more street videos than street fighting videos than somebody would imagine a guy who looks like me would watch, right? I watch a, a pretty good amount for someone who looks like me and somebody who doesn't get in street fights for that matter, hasn't been in a street fight for, you know, 17, 18 years. Um, but I was watching one even earlier today and I think it was like Russia. It was like some Russian country. And there's these, these guys that are outside and these two guys attack this one guy. One guy's about 180, 190 pounds. And these two guys attack him. They come running at him and he throws he throws, you know, one punch, boom, guy falls, knocks that guy out. And then he just, then in, in the next step, literally within the next second, he's like, boom, one guy's down. And then boom, the next guy's down. And so I'm watching that video. I'm like, boom, boom, right? Both guys fall like bricks and both guys had charged him, right? And and the, one of the things I was watching is, so when you watch something like that, one of the things I watched was his feet, okay? How are his feet when he's standing? Another thing I was watching for, was what did he do with his head? When he threw the punch, did he move his head off mark? And he did. When he threw the punches, every time he threw the punch, he threw the first one. He didn't throw a jab. He threw He threw it here when the first guy ran at him. He threw it like kind of with his lead hand. He threw like an overhand here, but he moved his head off center, Noah. He moved his head off center in case the other guy threw back. If the other guy threw back, the other guy would probably throw, you throw your hand here. The guy's looking usually for you to be on center, usually, usually, okay? And so he threw boom, big, but he threw his head off center. When the next guy came and he threw the next punch, he threw a big punch that landed and he threw his head off center, which was interesting, right? So the little things like that. Then I would imagine, okay, that maybe that's me. I would imagine how are his feet? And then I would also imagine, okay, this guy was very fast and explosive. How do I become faster and explosive? Because some people know you might watch a video and you're watching and you're saying, I like that move. But I don't know if I'm quick enough to, to enter because some of the things that work, like if Gary Tonin did everything super slow, everybody in the world would be able to stop it, even though it's brilliant and it's awesome and his technique is incredible. If he did everything super slow, I mean, the best fighters and, and jiu-jitsu arrows in the world would stop it. Part of it is the speed, the execution of speed. So you have to also be aware that when you see things that are working at a high level, that there is a speed element, there's a power element, and you have to constantly be exercising your mind and intelligently practicing and drilling during the week to say, hey, how do I get a little more, how do I work gradually? Because you can easily tear your groin or tear your hamstring or just something stupid, even punching. If you want to punch harder, don't go out and be, if you're unless you're like 20 years old, 18 years old, if you're our age, you're over 30 and you haven't been punching a lot, you need to go, you want to build power and speed, you need to go gradual, man. You don't go out there throwing, punching the bag as hard as you can. No, you're going you're gonna to jack up your elbow. You're going to jack up your shoulders. All those shoulder muscles aren't built for that. They're, they haven't built them up. So when you start looking at, hey, the speed and power it would take to, to execute these moves you love, let's start working with those. It might take us six months. It might take us a year. It might take us a year and a half. But let's get going gradually and intelligently and say, okay, I need to be faster or 
let's say I was watching Gary Tonin videos and I, and I'd look at his entries. I say, wow, he spins really well. How do I get better at spinning and being more flexible in those spots? How do I get better with my clamp? Right. A lot of these leg lock guys, Jordan and I were talking about this last, you know, a couple episodes ago, how do I get stronger with my clamp, my pinch, my groin pinch and everything. And so it's an awareness too of watching the move, rewinding the move, in, in transposing and inserting yourself as the hero, kind of like Elvis Presley style, and then also understanding what are the physical attributes it would take to do that and consciously starting to say, okay, I want to have better leg locks. Well, I'm going to need a really strong leg pinch. I'm going to need a really strong leg pinch for that. What can I start doing now without getting, you know, being stupid and getting hurt? What can I start doing today to get stronger by pinch? If I want more chokes, what can I start doing to get stronger? I want my guillotine chokes to be stronger. My rear naked choke to be stronger. What can I start doing now to exercise those muscles, even when I'm around the house, to get stronger so that I can pull that off? So when I watch videos, Noah, that's some of the stuff that I'm looking for. That's great that you've shared that with me because, um, you know, there's a, you know, in, in this is pretty popular to talk about uh, passive and active listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now, you know, what we're introducing here is active watching. Yes. You know, active, active observation. And, yep. and so I, what, what I've heard you say here, um, you know, I was very curious about it, you know, and I was thinking about what uh, Darren McCall would do and be the hero, you know, be the hero of, of the, of the matches, yep. um, identify, identify your type mm-hmm. with them and then start breaking down the nuances yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and I can see, you know, in the yeah, everything that's create everything that you do in reality is created twice. First in the mind and then the second way is manifested in the physical sense. Yeah. So I that was something um, we got into in, in, right now. You just talked about uh you know, backwards engineering or reverse engineering. Reverse engineering. We talked about reverse it in the last episode. Yeah. Reverse engineering, um, what they're doing by watching YouTube videos. Um, and then not taking a, uh, not taking a ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one trip. There's one trip that, uh, speaking of Darren McCall, there's one trip that he taught me. And Frank, I got to tell you, takedowns are hard for big guys uh, because you've got to move your mass plus that other guy's ass. <laughs> you know, that other guy's huge, you know, to move him. Um, and, you know, the timing, the timing of catching those trips while you're on your feet, the timing is tough, you know, like right when you're, and I've been practicing this one trip that, Darren taught taught me as a white belt, no stripes. And, you know, you have a grip. I have a grip on the lapel and I have a grip on the sleeve. And I, so I'm right-handed and I will do a quick sprint to his, to his left side. All right. Turn my hips to face the other way and pull. And so his right foot is seeking stability because I've pulled him off and he's doing that. And when I do that little sprint, it's like a two or three 
step, maybe four step shuffle, but it's a fast one for a lot of mass movement. And you get that rotation in. You get that rotation, your your opponent or practice partner, his right foot's going to be seeking, you know, to move because you're moving him off off of his uh, uh, center. And and what what I've got to do is you got to run, sprint to that, and simultaneously uh, uh, switch your hips to the other direction so that your left foot catches his right foot before it hits the mat Mm -hmm. so that you, you cause him to fall and then you can fall. Then you can go into side control and um, you know, that's a timing thing. That's a time. And I probably, you know, I, in my warmups, you know, in typical Gracie fashion, you know, you have your warm up and then you do takedowns, you train takedowns and I have been training that one move for years, that one thing. You know, I mean, it's in the rotation of what I practice because I don't want to practice 10 different techniques, 10 different takedowns. I just, I have a couple. I have a couple that I do. Um, uh, recently, um, um, Robert Drysdale last summer showed one. I cannot figure it out still. And I'm still, and I'm playing with it and it gets some guys and other guys like, wow, what was that? You know, it's phenomenal, but another guy's just doesn't work. So, um, um, you know, I, 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 what I'm saying here is, you know, watching these videos and being an active viewer of these, of these techniques. um, I think what I want to do is to limit my viewing to currently to the techniques that I currently train in and that I know and see them effectively employed in tournaments so that I can start whittling away, trimming away the inefficiencies and go, ah, you know, I've, I've trained this maybe 300 times already, you know, and, and instead of, instead of taking it something new, instead of taking something new, I think of what I will do is um, go and look for what what I've been training on and just be an active viewer and saying, where does this work? How does this work? But going back to our original, what started all this was... I want, I want, I want to say something, though, because I want okay. to make a suggestion. Okay. Uh, you know, you had mentioned the takedowns. By the way, you're right. Trips. Leoto Machida was probably one of the best trippers in, oh really? Um, and, and that I remember in MMA, um, the former UFC champion, he he was phenomenal with the timing on that. And you're right. There's some judicas out there that are phenomenal with those, um, you know, with those kind of sweep trips. We're not talking about like an inside wrestling trip where they drop to their knees. We're talking about those, you know, foot sweeps, right? Those I'm sweeps. talking about foot sweeps. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, and I, I should have been clear I, on that. I've been in love with the foot sweeps forever, and I don't think I've ever gotten one of them in a live. Uh, and and I, and I love them because they're low risk. The other thing is, first of all, they get the they get the opponent worrying about his feet. So now instead of him worrying about his uh-huh. body and the clinch and everything, now he's like, oh my goodness, I got to worry about my feet. They actually have to defend from head to toe, which is harder. Most people, you know, don't threaten from head to toe, so it, it's easier on the, the the other person and the opponent. That's but, a good point. So I've always. I've always loved foot sweeps. Um, you're right. The timing has to be incredible. I am not 
Uh, unfortunately, I'm not adept at them. But I was going to make a suggestion to you, just planning a seat. Let me hear it. Yeah. Um, regarding takedown. So let's imagine just for, for self-defense purposes and even for, you know, a lot of times you're going to be the bigger person. And in class, you might not be the bigger person because they put you with somebody closer to your size. But in real life, if, if the situation arose or even in training when you're with somebody, usually at random, if there were random encounters of you in self-defense, you're going to be the bigger person usually. And because of that, I think a bear hug makes sense. I think you should have bear hug varieties in your, in your, um, you know, they're very intuitive. They're very natural. They don't entail. There's, there's, of course there's adjustments and there's techniques you need to learn, but bear hugs would be a wonderful sequence for you for let's say even like 95%, uh, 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 90, 95% of situations. I'm not talking about necessarily tournament jujitsu. We do need to get you other takedowns for that, but you should, you should know bear, bear hugs should be in your repertoire. If I was your size, that would be in my, in my, in my repertoire. My buddy, John Swigert, I went to high school with him. He was a state runner up and that's what he used to beat me with in practice. He'd get this dang bear hug. That's what he'd be. He was, you know, 200 and some pounds, 205 pounds. I was like 150 and <laughs> he would, he would, he, he was very strong. He played D one football as well. Won a state title in football, but, um, yeah, he just had this bear hug that was like, man, it was just pure power. Once he locked his hands, just boom. And there is a few little techniques which I can show you, but you should have a bear hug in your repertoire. Just double under, boom. When you get that double under, you boom, you just, you know, and you just take them down. And and when you, you know, it's like they say, when you, if you got it, use it, right? If you got it, flaunt it. You got, mm, I mean, yeah. I even think this Noah with, with being muscular, like what's the good? I'm not saying we need to like, okay, if you're muscular, I'm not saying we need to be, you know, walking around shirtless or whatever in a thong bikini every day. I'm not saying that. But if I earn these muscles and I never showed them, like what's the point of having them and developing if you never show them? If you've got it, use it. Use it or lose it. If you've got that that brawn, you've got that horsepower, and God gave it to you or whatever gave it to you, and you're leaving it on the table and you're saying, I don't want to use that as a tool. It's a tool. And it's right there and you never reach for it. No, there's times you say, look, I'm just going to be the bear. I'm going to go in. I'm going to impose my will. I'm going to get double unders and, and that's it. And that's that. And I'm not saying you're going to necessarily do that at the elite tournaments. Maybe you will, maybe you'll get some, but, but it should be in your repertoire. I love the, I love the bear hug myself. Actually. I just am usually not the bigger guy in order to do it, but I love it. I love that. It's a very simple technique. There's little adjustments and it's, and it also feels good. Sometimes it feels good to just be like, I'm going to do what I want. And the other person can't stop it. I don't know if you've ever had that thrill, but in training, sometimes it feels good to be like, I'm just going to do this. And I don't think they can stop it. And you do it. They can't stop it. And sometimes that feels pretty darn good. So a bear hug is kind of like one of those. There's a time to flow. There's a time to force. The bear hug is imposing your will. And imposing your will is wrestling 101. That's wrestling 101. Wrestling, yes, there's finesse and there's whatever. But the number one mindset in wrestling is you're going to impose your will. It starts with that. A bear hug is imposing your will. You know, you bring me to another point that I wanted to uh, raise with you. Um, and um, it's there's still more to be said about what we were just talking about. And a lot of that, uh, you know, a lot of what I want to talk, I want to come back to is, is that initial 
Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a book called Blink, and it's about making snap judgments. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, you know what I what I want to return to in, in another talk. You know, in a few minutes, if we can, is is going back to that. You know that that uh, slap hands bump and then compete where you know I have to make that quick. You know, who's my opponent on on this for this uh, tournament match? And, uh, you know, how am I going to respond uh, or even react? But before I, we come back to that, um, I, I, I'm attracted to this sweep, the foot sweeps, uh, because it's, you know, I, there's an aspiration within me in my, in my jiu-jitsu to have, a, to show a little of the art form, you know, to, to, you know, I admire like, oh, did you see that? You know, did you see that move? Did you see that move? And, um, you know, as I watch so much UFC nowadays, I'm so much, I'm consuming so much material, you know, I'm starting to pick out like, that's not jujitsu. That looks like wrestling. You know, I'm starting to see something like that looks like other. So I'm starting to see that. And, and so I'm starting to recognize and, and the question is starting to come to me is when is, when are we doing wrestling as opposed to jujitsu? You know, how do I divide that line? And because I'm a little confused, especially, you know, on the takedowns, I'm seeing a lot of, I'm seeing a lot of foot techniques against the cage that I don't know if that's wrestling or jujitsu. You know, how do you divide that up? Um, do you have a good way of discerning, uh, discerning that? You know, I'm like, oh, that's that's wrestling as opposed to jujitsu. Am I making sense of my question? Well, if you if you watch Russian wrestlers, okay. By the way, I mean, if you look, if you watch wrestling for the last 60, 70 years, if we were to go back, okay, the most sophisticated wrestling techniques that I've seen are Russians. Okay, the Russians in general are have been yeah america's had its heyday we've had our olympic gold champions we're having a good run now with wrestlers with cal dake and and you know and, and jordan burroughs and you know we've got some phenomenal and, and david taylor and we've got some phenomenal u.s wrestlers now but i'm just saying over the last 70 years the russian technique even american even when americans are great at wrestling you know it's things it's there's where America is a bigger, faster, stronger society, meaning even if you have better, even if you're Japanese and you're fighting in a cage and you have better technique than some American, the American mindset is we'll just be bigger, faster, stronger. And even if you have superior technique, we'll beat you. That's a very American. That's sort of ingrained in the American ethos. We think of being number one at something as our, our birthright. We just think that we whether it's right or wrong, it's arrogant, whatever. American business people and athletes tend to have this, well, we're America, we have to do it bigger and better, and, and we just have to find a way to win. Nothing less than number one will do, right? Mm-hmm. And so when, when you, when when you, um, well, 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 I apologize for one second. No, I, I love no, that. You went to the, you were, you were bringing up the Russians about the. Yeah, so the, the Russians, the Russians man, you watch like the, the Russians, the, the techniques that they do, even for freestyle wrestling. It's like, where does Greco-Roman stop and freestyle begin i mean if you want yeah. them it's like wow they have some stuff that's like 
Greco-Roman, it's a little judo, and it's wrestling, and it's all woven into one. And they'll do it to you. You'll look at it, you'll think that's what Sambo is. Is that well? Sambo Sambo is is you know is is like the it's almost like leg attack, leg attack, um, leg attacks, um, wrestling, and of course striking, right? But more more so more so boxing, but but um, but. If you just watch even their their freestyle wrestlers, man, I mean they've got so many goodies to do to you that it's like the um there's a lot of techniques that are sort of weaving in. Even now, I think I think that the change I'm seeing at the at the collegiate level of wrestling, NCAA wrestling, you're seeing more of a willingness, you know, sort of with that Ben Askren funk style or even a jujitsu influenced style. So you're seeing wrestling in, impact jujitsu tremendously right now. But you're seeing the opposite. You're seeing uh, wrestlers being more daring when they're in a bad spot rather than conceding a takedown. They'll, they'll go to their back temporarily, temporary back exposure to do some weird scramble and come out and even counter attack. So there in the old days, you know, you wouldn't see that as much because the, the risk people would perceive, oh, my goodness, the risk of you going exposing your back even for a flash second would not be a good idea. Now you're just seeing a whole other level of boldness and daringness, which says, well, if I do this funky stuff and these funky rolls and these 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 crazy counters and you take advantage of your athleticism or backflips, then you can actually create havoc for your opponents. It's hard to prepare for that. It's easy sometimes to prepare for techniques sometimes and to know the counters. It's hard to prepare for someone who's so athletic or so yeah. unpredictable. We've talked about that with John Jones, where you're like, you go in with a game plan, but you don't know when you actually get out there. You're like, wow, you know, on tape, I see what this guy, I, I see what my opponent wants to do. But then when you feel their power, you feel how strong their grip is, or you feel how how great their balance is. There's things like that that don't show up. I had an athlete who uh, unfortunately doesn't train jiu-jitsu anymore. Probably the, the quickest learner I've ever seen on a mat. And... She was, you know, when you would train with her, she was really strong and she had great body awareness and and great, um, she, you know, great balance. These things, if you were to watch videotape of her, would not show up. She's one of those athletes. There are a lot of them where some things don't show up on tape as well. Tendencies might show up on tape. But when you get out there and you realize, oh, my goodness, this person's balance or they're a brick, right? They're stronger than you thought or they're four harder, you know, they're so there's. There's always things like that that you yeah. don't. Um, so, but to answer your question, I mean, where one begins and where one stops, I mean, in a way, it doesn't matter unless you know if you're if you're in a jujitsu tournament, you just know the rules and you know what what is legal. Some of the scissor sweeps, I think, I think like some of the scissor sweeps, which Gary Tonin likes and excels at, he'll do them in an MMA cage. He'll do them in the no gi grappling. Some of those are not legal in the gi, right? So, so it's, well, are those are those? Ex- what, you know, I haven't gone through the um, seventy. I'm sure there's think- variations of those that might be legal, but a lot of the conventional scissor sweep, uh, which I've actually had my knee, I've had my MCL torn, my the most severe MCL MCL tear, medial collateral ligament tear that I ever had, was for a scissor sweep in class, and. Um, that was right after I got my black belt. I just got my black belt. Uh, and I would say within two weeks of getting my black belt, guy came in from Texas about my size. Wasn't anything special. I mean, he was he was good. He was nothing special. I've trained with guys way better. 
but he got me with this uh, surprise scissor sweep. And, and when he did it, all of his weight went and took my knee out. It was early in the train. So my knees weren't warmed up. And, uh, I was, so my, so my, when your MCL tear, when you get like a level three tear, um, my, my leg was like dangling, like, like my, my knee would dangle like this. So, well, you know, normally you get a little looseness in the joint or whatever, and the MCL will swell up or whatever. And you'll see, you know, like the swelling on the side of the knee. But in this case, I got a lot, lot of swelling there. And my knee, my knee, like the joint, because the MCL was, you know, had been had been uh, partially torn, but but a really really um, deep deeper tear, and it was like my knee was dangling like this for like a couple of weeks. <laughs> I didn't so, need surgery. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. We could go down the rabbit hole with the taxonomy yeah. of moves. Um, you know, and trying to parse out whether they are Greco-Roman style or I guess there's something called folk wrestling. Yeah. Um, and then I was, you know, you know, thinking, you know, the history of the Iranians uh, since, the, I mean, way back, they were battling the uh, Greeks. So I got, you know, I guess they adopted and maybe they probably kidnapped some uh, some uh, Greek uh, Greek wrestlers and had well, them. This is the thing, though. No, in freestyle even Greeks. wrestling, in freestyle wrestling, there's nothing to prevent you from doing a Greco-Roman takedown or a judo throw. It's just okay. you have to be able to pull it off. There's nothing. In other words, in judo, a lot of the freestyle wrestling is not legal, right? But in freestyle wrestling, if you could do a judo throw, you could, you know, whatever, what, you, you could do it. it. It'll be two points if you can hold mm-hmm. them down. And you could do a Greco-Roman throw in freestyle wrestling. And, it, you know, and you can do. So the greatest variety in freestyle, there are a lot more. um especially in folk style, right? We have folk style here in America and then the international rules are what are called freestyle. But, you know, um, Greco-Roman, of course, has more restrictions, right? It's more a lot of upper body stuff and you're not okay. allowed, you know, in, in general, you can't take the leg. But even judo, judo has, right, certain chokes and certain arm bars that are legal, but then it prevents a lot of other jiu-jitsu. But there are certain clock chokes and, and arm bars, you know, in interject Ronda Wousey. So, um, I, I wouldn't get caught up as much with that side of it. I would just be like, you like it. And if you really like it and you think it fits in your toolbox, then you start to train it. We can categorize it later, but, um, I wouldn't, you know, I, I mean, you could go to a jujitsu tournament and do the bear hug, right? That bear hug, which is kind of a judo throw in a way, in a way, when you do variations of those bear hugs, you can do it off to the side and you're, you know, you're talking a little. Yeah. That, that's, that's where I was headed with my question. Yeah. You know, at, I was setting up my question for you. Just turn my little light on here. I was messing with it. Yeah. My question there was, was along the lines of, you know, how does, you know, when you go in and, and I'm speaking more solely of the IBJJF rules, those kind of tournaments, you know, I I go into Henzo's Blue Basement. You know, we train stuff. Um, no one's doing scissor sweeps. You know, that's kind of not at my level. And hopefully, no one surprises me with that. Uh, otherwise, I will surprise them with a with a um, orthopedic surgeon's bill. Um, but you know, there's got to be a point where you start to say, well, what you know, how does the how does the rule set work for IBJJF tournaments when I can go, Oh yeah, that worked, but that wasn't, you know, that wasn't the art form. Now that's something else. 
You know, now they're using wrestling. You know, they're using wrestling whenever this is a jujitsu tournament. And this is, you know, this is not a wrestling tournament. This is jujitsu. So, you know, my question there is, how do I ensure that I am being uh, pure to the sport and training technique, training jujitsu technique, as opposed to bringing in wrestling moves, which sounds great. This is not the UFC. This is not freestyle. Jiu-jitsu is a, this is a international, was international Brazilian Jiu-jitsu Federation. We're talking about Jiu-jitsu here, Brazilian Jiu-jitsu. We're not talking Judo even. So how, you know, as I'm going through and I'm select, you know, I know what I'm going to look for uh, when I'm watching videos and I see on IBJJF and I know what works. Well, you just uh, you just need to find a takedown that you, you need to, if you're watching wrestling and you're just watching pure wrestling and you said, I like that takedown, you're watching UFC or you're watching um, a, you know, Olympic wrestling match. And if you like the takedown, you just have to realize, okay, if I was to incorporate that into my game, how would I modify it to account for maybe the possibility of being guillotine choked or kimura or something like that, right? What would, what, how would I, how would I adapt it? Because a lot of times you can see a takedown that's just pure wrestling and it works in a UFC cage or it works somewhere else, but it might not work as well in jujitsu um, because of the threat of what's coming back at you, right? So, you know, it's, 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 it's realizing that. I want to say something really quick though, because I don't know why you triggered this. Um, go back to visualization. We talked about visualization earlier. Okay. And, and I was thinking it occurred to me like the pitfalls, like how could someone be a better visualizer, especially right now where a lot of people can't train very much or some people can't train at all. And they're sort of left to just watch YouTube videos. And they're left with their own devices. Yeah. yeah. And that accounts for a lot of their training. So uh-huh. I mentioned sort of like make yourself the hero of your own, you know, uh, uh, make yourself the hero of the video, um, you know, imagining yourself trading places. It's, it's no longer Gary Tonin or JT Torres. It's you. The other thing I would say that really this is, and I'm, I, and I, this is not, this is hardly ever, I've never had this conversation with anybody. I've never read it anywhere. This is purely from my mind, my observation, my 33 years in the combat sports. This is me. This is not something someone told me, but I think that this is very true. And I think that fixing this pitfall will do wonders for a lot of, you know, beginner or intermediate uh, tournament competitors. And it is this, the problem for a lot of people is that they go through, they go to the gym where everything is familiar. Their training partners are familiar and you get used to people, even though there's good people in the gym, you get used to them, you get used to their games and you get psychologically. Okay. Then when they get on a plane and they go to a tournament in California or wherever, and they have people that they've never rolled against, people who aren't even as good as some of the people they train with a lot of the time. A lot of times people you go and compete against aren't even better than a lot of people in your own gym. And yet, because of the unknowns and the, you know, all of the unfamiliar, and that hurts them, that makes them, at the very least, that makes them hesitant. And it hurts their performance. They don't perform to their best because now they're overthinking or there's a hesitation gear or the fear is speaking at a higher volume than it does in training. And so the result is subpar performance or a performance that's nowhere near their best. This is extremely common. In fact, 
this is the norm. The norm is that people go to these tournaments, et cetera, live competition, and they underperform. I would, I would estimate that probably 90% of people are in that category, even when they're winning, they're actually underperforming relative to their potential because of things like this, because of the unfamiliar, because of the unknown, because of the mental game. And so what you need to do, in addition to watching the videos and seeing yourself as the hero, seeing yourself doing the moves and pausing the video and watching and looking for all these things and then imagining what kind of strength and speed and flexibility would it take for me to get there and then slowly gradually working on that but the other big thing here this thing i'm telling you which is pretty much i should I almost shouldn't say this during live filming because it's it's a very good detail and um and it's something that a lot of instructors are going to use what i'm about to say they're going they're going to say that they know it but they never talk they don't know it and most of them don't say anything about it because they don't know how to specifically wrote a root of this like I'm talking about. The very important thing is that you have to almost, you have to get used to visualizing yourself in unfamiliar, in unknowns against yeah, people yeah, you yeah. don't know. Mm -hmm. You have mm -hmm. to, let me give you an example. When I was, when I was in high school, I would want to see the gyms. That, that's why the day or two before, if I could get there, I would walk around the arena. I would always recommend to walk around the arena. Nowadays, if you even before you get on the plane, you can get you can go on Google and find out what it looks like. I want to know what it looks like in there. I want to know what the color is. I want to know what the lighting is. I want to know that. People don't understand, Noah, that little things can affect your your comfortability or not. Little things. So even just not knowing that the gym is cold. Some people go there and, you know, th little things add up. Oh, the gym is cold. Oh, there's more people than I thought would be watching. Oh, there's 10 mats and not two. Oh, I thought that my coaches would be closer to the mats. I can't hear my coach now. Oh, I thought that my coach would be allowed to corner me, but now he's not allowed to corner me there for whatever reason. Oh, I thought that people have this expectation. Uh, you know, there sometimes people go to a tournament and they're worried. My mom or my friends are supposed to come. Where where are they? Are they here? And they're worried about that instead of the match, right? So there's all kinds of little things that because people are new and they're not familiar, they're thinking about, oh, where's the bathrooms? Oh, there's only one bathroom and there's 500 competitors and there's only one bathroom and it's hard to get in there and take a piss or do whatever. And you've got and when you go to a tournament, you're going to have to pee. Your sense of how often you have to pee is going to be go up way. You're never going to have to pee more than when you go to a tournament if you're properly hydrated. You'll always feel like you have to pee because something about your your senses become heightened when you get to a tournament. Every sense becomes heightened. Your sense of, I got to pee. So you'll feel like you got to pee a lot. A lot of people feel like they got to pee all the time. And you'll be like, well, where are the bathrooms? So you have to make peace too, whether it be walkthroughs, whether it be researching. Where's the nearest place you're going to eat at? Instead of making trouble. Oh, we had to eat a crap meal that you didn't want to eat. You need to know when you get in the place, where are you going to be eating? You know, what are what sort of things do you know work for your stomach? And and don't you don't play roulette with your eating and your drinking before a tournament, which people do, oh, there's this special thing at the restaurant. We'll cover that. that we'll cover that. that. We'll cover that, that later. Yeah. So yeah. when you visualize, you have to visualize to account for the setting. Listen. If you go look, I'm a writer, as you know, Noah, and I've been in writing for, you know, 20. I've been writing since I was eight, nine years old. I was writing song lyrics back then. And so I've been writing for 40 years. OK, 
I never read a book until college, right? I never read a book cover to cover. The first book I ever read was Frederick Douglass's life and narrative of, uh, you know, Frederick Douglass, phenomenal book, 144 pages, riveting, unbelievable. I mean, just, I have so much respect for Frederick Douglass. So how come I never read a book? Well, one reason is a lot of the people were told are the great writers, but the great writers, the great American writers, one thing that they tend to do, the older writers, even some of the greats, they beat sense of place into you. Like, there will be plenty of books out there where the first four or five chapters are all about rural North Carolina and what it looks like. Yes. And these are these are deciduous trees. And the town was founded. Here's the history of the town. And here's this special endangered species that's in the town. And here's the bears. And you're like, what the hell? Like, let's get to the characters. Let's get to the meat. Why are you giving me a sense of place? Why are you beating me upside the head with what this town is about and what it looks like and the color and the topography and the geography and the geology? Bro, get to the point. It used to drive, it'll drive a young person crazy, right? Especially if you're ADD. Well, let's fast forward to our visualization. That setting matters to you because your body feeling comfortable. You might go down a dark alley. How comes a lot of people, brave people go down a dark alley and they're like, just a dark alley, okay? You don't know what's in that freaking alley. Why does that freak people out? You walk, if any city after midnight, just there could be nobody on the town. If you go down a dark alley in almost any American city after midnight, right? And most of them, you'd be like, whoa. Your, your sense of like, your spidey sense is like, why? The odds are there's probably nobody in that alley waiting for you, right? There's probably nobody. But guess what? Now, if you were more familiar with that alley, I bet you if you walk that alley every night, you might be alert and scared. You'll be less scared. You'll be well aware of more. You're partly freaked out by the alley you don't know more than the alley you do know. The dark alley you don't know will scare the piss out of you more than the dark alley you do know. Once you start to know the terrain of the alley, you know what to look for, it's different. So you have to get comfortable with what is the – let me let – me, I, I, well, I remember I did a uh, I did a uh, a grapplers quest tournament in Vegas, and to give you an idea of this stupid silly, I think I told this story once before, but it bears repeating. Two things. So we were there. I had to compete against. I had three matches, and my final match was against Jerry Shapiro. Jerry Shapiro is a very good black belt. He's fought professionally. He's done well as a pro fighter. He's you know during our day, me and Jerry Shapiro were probably two you know among the the the, the five best. Uh, grapplers in in our size in all of Vegas, in all of Nevada. So, you know, that was like a rival match. That's like your home turf. That's like Pittsburgh versus Baltimore in NFL, right? It's like Jerry Shapiro, Cobra Kai. I was with Team Mika back then, you know, who's now Hoyler Gracie affiliate. Rivalry. Well, I didn't know that they were going to let everybody in the stands sit on the corner of the mat. Right? Wow. I didn't know that. Oh, boy. I thought, you know, in my way of thinking, Everybody has in the stands, right, or behind the barriers. That's IBJJF. Well, here, Grappler's Quest, hey, if they want, if, if, the, if the people watching and the coaches and the teammates want to get on the edge of the mat, they can do it. So you got, like, 50 people on the edge of the mat, like, right near the, you know, here's the circle for the out-of-bounds. Like, when you go right out-of-bounds, there's people. You're stepping over people. And it's like, so that's something you got to prepare for a little bit. Like, oh, then, th then the other thing was, the mat was so close to the it was a, it was on a basketball court so the mats had been put on a basketball courts well when you went out of bounds you took a couple steps 
And if you kept going, there was a hardwood floor. So it wasn't like mats, 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 mats. It's a hardwood floor and nobody to stop you. So I got taken down one time when I went out of bounds and I stopped, I stopped, I stopped uh, wrestling, right? I stopped competing. I got out of bounds. I was going to go ahead and bounce. My opponent didn't stop, drilled me onto the hardwood floor, drilled me, double leg tackled me. My hip, my right hip clicked for like two months at my iliotibial uh, um, band on the side of my hip was clicking and popping for two months and my hip hurt, right? Getting tackled on a hardwood floor. What's my point there? My point is that when you get experience and when you when you get experience, you learn how to visualize, you start mentally accounting for this. Hey, beware of that hardwood floor there because if your opponent doesn't stop, hey, beware of the fact that there's going to be other people, not just coaches on the edge of the mat yelling. Be aware of that. Don't let that spook you. Don't pay attention to what they're saying. Hey, beware of, um, you know, of, of, of even the referee, the referee might be a, you know, a, a Cobra Kai guy or whatever. Be aware of that. Know that you can't, like Dana White would say, don't leave it to the judges. Be aware that the referee might have an affiliation, which means even more that you better leave no doubt. You can't play it safe yeah. when the, when, if the ref has an affiliation and, and you know, even, uh, even an honest ref, but that ref has an affiliation or the, with, with whomever, with your opponent or whatever, you have to, you have to be aware of these things. And you have to make yourself, um, you have to prepare for a lot of possibilities. Like one thing I also realized with, with tournament grappling, you got to get used to. When you get near the edge of the mat, be hype. A lot of people relax. So they get near the edge of the mat and think, all right, one more step and I'll be out. And then they take the step out and then they stop. And it's like, no, do not. Like be aware because so many people will be opportunistic on the edge of the mat and you'll think you were out or you'll think whatever or you'll stop. Like, you can stop when you, you're near the edge of the mat and the referee will say, paru, paru, which means stop. Well, make sure your opponent actually stops. You can stop, but remain aware. Because I've seen I've seen guys like, like um, you know, because of the, they don't have the edge of the mat awareness, I've seen a lot of things from me being tackled out of bounds and look at the ref like, dude, we were out of bounds. Like, you know what, you're supposed to, you're supposed to protect me. Well, the ref's not going to protect you all the time like that. Even though it's supposed to, that's not supposed to happen. Well, it does. There's times I've seen guys get submitted near the edge of the mat. I've seen guys get taken down because they thought they were out of bounds and whatever. I've, I've also seen, um, uh, I've seen this is a, this is a really important one. You got to prepare for this one. Um, and IBJJF does you know does a pretty good job, but this is this would hurt me many times in tournaments when you and it's near the out of bounds. It's out of bounds awareness. You when you go out of bounds. And let's say you're in a certain position, there's going to be a restart. The ref is going to start you in the same position, right? A lot of times those refs, right, the two or three refs will come and drag you back to the same position onto the mat. Well, sometimes, guess what? Many times they don't drag you. They just say, they'll say, paru, paru, mean you're out of bounds, and they'll bring you in the center and start you. I'm not talking about takedowns. I'm talking about if you're in a butterfly guard, you're in a closed guard, you're in uma plata, you go out of bounds. They'll bring you back to the center and they're going to restart you. But what happens a lot of times, tons of times, is when they restart you, the referee doesn't realize where the grips were. So your opponent's going to try to take advantage and go to a way better grip. I had this happen to me at Masters Worlds 2018, I believe it was. I went against the guy, um, two-time all two-time uh, world champion, two-time adult black belt world champion who now is doing Masters Worlds. This guy won two black belt world titles. So this is a former legit all-ages world champion who's now in the Masters. Me and him are competing. And 
we had us uh, we had the out of bounds thing and a restart and and I have the video of it by the way but the ref doesn't care the ref the ref's not going to watch your video and in the restart right we go ref says oh, paru paru you know you're out of bounds come back to center I'm starting in his guard bro he gets a grip on my lapel and my knee the ref says you know go you know va 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 whatever go kombachi yeah kombachi runs me over with a takedown from a grip that he never had Right. Ah, never had that sneaky, grip. sneaky guy. He never had that grip, but he's a wise veteran, a wily veteran. And now what could I have done different? This is my point. We can talk about, hey, that's not fair. I have the video. That didn't matter. He won the match four to two, came down to the wire. I had a chance to take his back late. I didn't take his back late. He won four to two, went on and won the whole thing. Uh, very, very tough match. But what's my point? What could I have done different? What I could have done different is when we were near the out of bounds, when the ref said, paru, paru. What I could have done is I could have said, and Drysdale, Drysdale pounds this into his athletes as well. You look at the ref before you break and you say, here's where his grips are. That way you get assurance. Here's the grip. All one right. on my lapel, one on my knee. So you I'll make write a point to the ref. You don't, you don't just think that the ref knows. Because the ref, no matter how honest, just the ref could be thinking, well, they're in a butterfly guard. Yeah, well, a butterfly guard with what grip? The grip matters big time, right? So, so you've got to be aware. Hey, point point to the hands, or or if you're the offensive guy and you had a great grip, don't let the restart because your opponent. If you had a great grip, your opponent's going to be like, "Let me give Noah a lesser grip," and the ref probably won't know the difference. The ref will just be right. thinking, "Well, it was a closed guard situation, and eh, he had a normal grip." But maybe you had a better than normal grip. So you want to draw the ref's attention. Hey, ref, look. My hand, I have one hand here high on the lapel. One hand high on the lapel is different from one hand mid lapel. That's different. One hand, you know, uh, on the on the wrist is different from one hand on the knee at the pant at the knee. That's different. Those are, and grips are crucial in our sport. So the refs, you know, a lot of times the refs are doing the best they can, but sometimes they're, their mind's in another place. They do tons of matches. They're, they're just waiting for the match to be over. They're kind of here. They're paying attention to the match. I've seen plenty of refs pay attention little bit to the mat next to them what's going on there and then they'll then yeah. they'll focus back on your match so don't leave it the chance to say the ref you know paru, paru, paru. okay if you like your grip or you you know pay attention hey hey yeah, yeah you know you're not supposed to talk to the ref but you can just say you know ref um i have my uh you know you can just point you can even just point you can point you near your grips like point or you can say something you know now you're generally not supposed to say anything to the ref you're not supposed to say. But in this case, it's not a negative. You're not saying to the ref. You're not condemning the ref. You're not being disrespectful. You're just saying, you know, um, you know, Mr. Ref, you know, I have a grip. I have a high lapel grip and I have this. Maybe he'll warn you, whatever. But at least you got him to, to, to acknowledge, hey, can we can I give you a clear, firm picture so that there's no doubt these are where the grips are right now? I have this grip because there's tons of stuff the refs can't even see. You have a little grip, whatever, a special little grip, and you can't see it. Then you get back in the, in the middle and you get some crappy grip. And then next thing you know, you and your opponent, I've had this happen multiple times. Now you and him are arguing over the restart. And then the ref no. is like, hey, but not, knock it off. I've had that multiple times. Mm. Now you and him are beefing over where were the grips. So to avoid that, you have to understand when you go into a tournament or a fight, the way that you're going to be mentally prepared for a fight is worst case scenario thinking. If I was to fight in a cage and I wish I was a younger man and I could, you have to imagine what's the worst case scenario here. 
I go, I wind up in the ER. I wind up dead. Whatever it is, you got to make peace with that. In our sport too, you have to make peace with worst case scenarios or things that can go wrong. Your luggage doesn't come on the plane. Your luggage doesn't come. You mm-hmm. know, where, where are you going to eat? What are you, how are yep. you going to handle the out of bounds? That's crucial. How are you going to handle the out of bounds awareness scenarios? Um, how are you going to handle when the ref, some people, it bothers them that the ref knows or is affiliated with their opponent. You got to get past that. You know, you just have to understand these variables and visualize and see yourself a gym that you don't even like. I don't like the temperature in this gym. I don't like the way it's laid out. I don't like the lighting. I don't like the feel. I don't like the vibe. You got to see yourself still getting it done. Let me give you one more example of this. Let me give you one more example. I believe this is affecting UFC right now. Those UFC fights, a lot of fighters, it's going to be psychologically tougher on them right now to adjust from fighting in front of 13, 14, 15,000 people and fighting in front of 200 because you can hear everything. It's a different experience. You have to prepare for that, for going in and fighting in that setting. It's different than 20,000. You may think it's not an issue, but it is because the human brain works that way for most people. I'm not saying for everybody, but for most people, it does work that way. If you thought there were going to be 20,000 people and there's only 200, that matters. You need to be ready for that. You're going to be able to hear what the commentator is saying. Normally, in a normal UFC fight, you can't hear the commentator calling the fight. Nowadays, you can, which is why, you know, Herb, I mean, Herb Dean could hear what Dan Hardy, my old friend, old training partner, he could hear what he was saying. In the old days, that wasn't the case. you got to be ready for that. It's changed now. You can hear everything the damn commentator is saying. So the commentator's in your ear. Normally, he wouldn't be. You have to understand it's an echo chamber now. It's changed. And those little things matter because you don't want to be in a fight thinking about how this just seems weird, not how I visualized it. You know, you, you want to be aware that you're going to hear what everybody in that 200 person gym or whatever yells, you know, versus if there's 20,000 people are yelling, you probably don't hear anything because 20,000 collectively just sort of drowns everything out. It makes it easier to focus then actually it can be a little harder to focus when it's a very intimate setting and, and it can be different. So, so you have to, uh, you have to, when you visualize, you have to visualize very specifically for what will this arena look like? Is there, the temperature of it. Some places, Noah, out there, some tournament places, especially in the winter, can be really cold. That can affect your warm-up. You don't want to be worried about that. I know that people will say this is trivial, but I don't believe it's trivial because I believe Tom Brady looks to, 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 to understand a lot. Like A lot of things that have nothing to do with fighting can throw you off of your fight. Your check-in at your hotel if you have problems. A lot of yep. things can throw you off. So you got to understand where am I staying? What's the procedure there? Where are we eating? Right? Where Where am I going to be warming up? Is this gym known to be cold? Should I bring extra warm-up stuff? You know, every little thing. Are there going to be 20,000 people there? Or are there going to be 5,000 people? How close are the athletes and coaches allowed to be on the mat? I'm not saying you know all that. I'm saying all of that matters to most athletes. I'm not saying it matters to Roger Gracie. I'm not saying it matters to Marcelo Garcia. There are a subset. But for the vast majority, people who are already nervous, who are already inexperienced, those little things, if you can do your research ahead of time, where you're going to eat, what the gym looks like, you know, uh, how many mats they're going to be, what the rule set is. The more you can get familiar with the unfamiliar in advance, then you can visualize, see yourself in that gym. 
see yourself on that color mat if you even know the color of the mat. Hey, Frank, you know? I got to stop you here. I have to stop you. For 20 minutes, I've been wanting to tell you we had 10 minutes left. Oh, sorry. <laughs> For 20 minutes. But um, I know we have a hard and fast stop because my battery is is under 5% uh, from my laptop. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to stop you, but um, it's like at some point I have to stop you because yeah. uh, a lot of good well, material yeah. there. <laughs> all right. Well, balance all what you just said with the parable of the plank. And, um, but uh, we'll have to save that for next time because uh, my, uh, my laptop battery is kaputs. Um, enjoyed, enjoyed talking to you today. We, um, we kicked off something which is internal, you know, the, all the inside work you got to do, you know, watching video yeah. and what you can do off the mat that really counts. So um, thank you. Episode 32. We'll see you. Have a great rest of the day, Noah. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody, for watching. All right. Take care. Bye. That's it for today's episode of Everyman BJJ. Thanks for listening. Look for new episodes of Everyman BJJ every week, wherever you get your podcast or at everymanbjj.com.